0: beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you, therefore, uh, before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria uh, and Cilicia And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who was used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. You may be
1: Go to prayer again, please. Heavenly Father, we're here in your presence. In the name of the only one who stands between us, your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we're here, we want you to know how much we admire you, how much we adore you. And may you receive our worship today as a sweet-smelling sacrifice. But Lord, even as we came today in order to give to you our worship, we recognize how dependent we are on you. Thank you for giving us <clears throat> your Holy Spirit. That You did not leave us alone, but you gave him to us to stir our hearts and to affect our minds, to change our lives so that we would be conformed to the image of your Son. So come, have your way with us, please. It's in the name of Jesus that we come. The world's getting smaller, isn't it? It struck me this week as I was answering some Facebook messages from friends, how many of them were from other countries and even other continents. Through travel, through immigration, through public media, through social media, you and I can rub shoulders almost on a daily basis with people who are from a different nationality, a different race, a different ethnic group, we truly live in a global village. And to live in a global village, it's real important that we learn to get along with one another, isn't it? If we're going to live with people who are not like us, it's important that we not only learn to tolerate people who are different, but that we learn to respect, that we learn to accept people who are different from us. I think this is especially felt here in North America. The United States and Canada are both countries of immigration. And here, in our part of the world, we need to learn to accept people who aren't like us. The interesting thing is, though, that many people assume that to treat other people with mutual respect, to treat people who are not like me with acceptance, means that I must also treat all religions as equally valid. There's a strong push. There's, there's a strong push in our culture to treat all religions as equally valid. So Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Mormonism, Christianity, and even nothingism ism are all to be considered equally valid. The point is not what you believe so long as you're sincere, so long as you're consistent with those beliefs. I've had people say to me things like this. Maybe you've heard them. Maybe you've said them. What's right for you is right for you. And what's right for me is right for me. Everybody wins. Everybody's right. Everybody's beliefs Everybody's religion is equally valid. Now now that sounds very acceptable in our society. In fact, that sounds preferable in our society, that kind of outlook on life and religion. But if you think about it in a calmer moment, not everybody can be right at the same time, can they? I mean, think about it this way, if book is called person A and this is very common in our society, if person A says, the way to be right with God is to live a good moral life. Now this past week, I watched a three-minute video of someone interviewing college students about, do you think you'll go to heaven? And it was amazing the percentage of young adults who said, I think so. I mean, I really try to live a good life. I really think I'm trying to make my life count for something. So the person, person A, who says, the way to God is by living a good life. And person B, who says, the only way to be right with God is through faith in Christ alone. Those both can't be right at the same time, can they? Person A and person B cannot both be right either one of them is wrong or they're both wrong but they can't both be right now this sounds rather axiomatic this sounds rather obvious but in our culture maybe that has to be repeated they can't both be right so can I ask you a very personal question (laughs) if you're a follower of Jesus Christ how do you know? How do you know if what you believe is right? How do you know? How do you know that the gospel we profess here at this church is the authentic gospel? Can we be sure? Can we know? If you haven't already, please join me in Galatians chapter 1. Galatians Chapter 1. Last Sunday, Pastor Mark introduced us to the book of Galatians. And let me encourage you, if you were not able to be with us last Sunday, to get on the church's website and see the link to that sermon. It'll be well worth your time. Pastor Mark taught us last week that some of the churches in this part of the Roman Empire, known as Galatia, what we know today as a section of Turkey, uh, some of the churches in that portion of Galatia were Planted by the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys. And within a relatively short time, some of these churches began to deviate from the gospel that Paul had preached to them. Apparently what had happened was there were some false teachers who had come to those churches and they had to one degree or another convince these new believers in Galatia that the message that Paul had taught them wasn't really accurate. I mean, Paul had taught them that the way to be right with God is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And some of these false teachers were saying, well, that's not exactly right. You know, maybe Paul was trying to win more Gentiles. Maybe Paul was just trying to be more popular in this part of the Roman Empire where, you know, there's a lot of Gentiles. And so what he did to get more followers was to kind of soften the message. You see, Paul kind of took away part of the the real gospel. And, And these false teachers were saying that if you want to be right with God, yes, yes, put your faith in Jesus Christ. But you also need to follow the Old Testament laws. You still need to follow them as a covenant. The men need to be circumcised. There are certain foods you just don't eat, friends. If you you really want to be right with God, you need Jesus plus the law. It seems quite likely, just reading between the lines, so to speak, in the book of Galatians, that the way these false teachers were trying to pull these people away from the gospel that Paul had taught them was to convince them that Paul wasn't trustworthy. You know, Paul... I, you, you shouldn't just bank all your, all your money on Paul. I mean, you know, uh, he's kind of modified the gospel, and he got it from these guys, and then he kind of tweaked it to serve his own ends. And we don't know what all they said, but just listening to how Paul defended himself and reading backwards, as it were, to read between the lines, they were undermining Paul's integrity as a spokesman for God, as an apostle. And so Paul writes the book of Galatians, which you've, you read the verses from last week. How can we say it politely? Is rather passionate. Vehement came to my mind that <laughs> the Apostle Paul is clearly upset. He has a holy upsetness that these people that he loved, that these people that he had taught the gospel of Jesus Christ were now veering away from it so quickly. If I were to summarize what Paul is telling them, I would say something like this. Don't ever put a plus after the name of Jesus. Don't you ever put a plus after the name of Jesus. It's never Jesus plus morality. Jesus plus sacraments. Jesus plus the law. Jesus plus your good works. It is Christ alone. So we're looking at this passage that Todd read for us a few minutes ago. And for simplicity today, friends, I just want us to explore answers to two questions. Two questions. First question is this. Where did Paul get the gospel message? Where did he get it? And then the second question flows from that. What difference does that make to us today? So the first question, where did Paul get his gospel message? Paul makes a strong case here, and he actually ends up telling his own story. It's kind of a synopsis of his testimony. Paul's making a point that the gospel was not human invention. The gospel was not any human invention. Paul sure didn't invent the gospel message. He didn't make it up. It didn't come to him as a rational thing to believe and teach. Look at verses 13 and 14 again. He says, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Did did you catch how he described his BC life, his before Christ life? He says, I was a rising star in Judaism. He really was. I mean, if you've ever read, for instance, his letter to the Romans, you have to acknowledge this man was, by God's design, was brilliant. Paul was gifted, he was zealous, and he was climbing, he was climbing the, the ladder of religion. He was climbing that ladder of Judaism, moving ahead of many of his peers. You could become a rabbi at the age of 30. And probably Paul, the age of some of you men in here, early 30s, was cl- rapidly climbing to leadership within Judaism in Jerusalem. And he was so passionate about these traditions that he had received, not just the Old Testament law, but the traditions that were found in the Talmud and other Jewish writings. He'd been taught them, he'd excelled educationally, academically, even personally in his zeal and in his, his Jewish morality. That he saw this new sect called followers of Christ, or Christians, he saw them as a threat to the integrity of the Judaistic traditions he had been taught and believed. And so, he devoted himself. He devoted himself to persecuting the followers of Jesus Christ. You can read his testimony. He gives it several places in the book of Acts. It's recorded for us in the book of Acts. He tells it here. He alludes to it in other letters. He was passionately trying to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. He would imprison some believers. He would torture others. He would try to get them to blaspheme. And if the council actually voted whether to let this Christian live or die, Paul says, I voted the death Now, if we could somehow put ourselves in his BC sandals, I imagine that Saul of Tarsus, as he was known then, I imagine that Saul saw himself as a protector of truth, as a protector of the true religion, the traditions that have been handed down by his forefathers. Maybe he thought of himself kind of like uh, Elijah of old who killed the prophets of Baal, you know? I'm like him I'm, I'm passionate for God I'm going I'm to go kill these heretic Christians I'm going to destroy the church he hated the Christian movement so much so that he wasn't even content with trying to destroy the church in his own area but he wanted permission to travel a distance up north to Damascus in Syria to try to destroy the churches up there Some of you know the story, the testimony of Saul of Tarsus. That on the road to Damascus, his life was radically changed. That he went from being a persecutor of the church to being a preacher of the gospel that day. He was radically changed from someone who wanted to kill those who believed in the gospel to someone who was willing to be killed for the sake of the gospel. What happened to Saul of Tarsus? What happened to him? How did his life do such a radical 180? Can you think of some human explanation? I mean, every effect has a cause. Cause and effect, right? Every effect has a cause. We, we see this man radically changed. His life turned upside down. Not, not a 90 degree change, a 180 degree change. How did that happen? What happened to this up and coming Judaic rabbi? Do you think do you think that maybe as Paul? kind of jogged along on his mount on the way to Damascus, he suddenly thought, you know, the message of Jesus Christ that carpenter turned rabbi, that the Jewish leaders, my mentors, and the Roman government executed on the Roman cross. You know, when I stop and think about it, that message really makes sense. You know, maybe I've been wrong all along. You know, I I think maybe I got it wrong. I think, you know, this is rational to me. This is logical to me. I I guess I need to turn around and go home. Um, That gospel message, after all, probably is true. I I think I'll become a Christian. Is that what happened to Saul of Tarsus? Even you children in the room know that's not what happened. The change that happened to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus cannot be explained Humanly, He did not become a preacher of the gospel because of some decision he made that day. He did not internally rationalize that becoming a Christian would somehow make his life easier, more personally fulfilling. Because if you follow his life as recorded in the book of Acts, and as he alludes to in some of his letters, his life did not get easier when he became a follower of Jesus Christ, his life got harder. In fact, if you keep reading this letter, the letter to the Galatian churches, you get to chapter 6, verse 17, and he says, he says in, in writing to these people, he says, I bear in my body the marks of Christ. I'm not sure everything he meant by that but I think one thing he meant by that is even by this time in his life he already bore scars of persecution beatings and stonings and if you read in the book of Acts chapter 14 Luke, Luke recounts for us there in Acts 14 that when Paul was in a city called Lystra that the Judaizers Convinced the people of Lystra that Paul was a heretic, a false preacher to the point that the people of Lystra stoned Paul to the point they thought he was dead. He was so beat up by the rocks they threw at him that they left him for dead. My friends, Lystra is one of the churches that read this letter. Lystra is a Galatians. hearing this letter read by your elders you you know that I bear in my body the marks of Christ you cannot explain you cannot explain the radical change in Saul of Tarsus the Paul the preacher of the gospel by some human explanation the gospel that Paul preached did not come out of his head it was not his invention Man like Saul of Tarsus would not come up with the gospel from his own thinking. You can't explain it that way. I thought it was fascinating. John MacArthur said something He's, that caught my eye. He said, By nature, people pleasers are not martyrs. Do you remember out in verse 10? How Paul says, Am I trying to please men or am I trying to please God? If I was trying to please men, I wouldn't be a God pleaser anymore, now would I? would lead anyone who had such a promising career, who had the accolades of his peers and his mentors, what would lead a man like that away from this promising future he had to be a martyr for the gospel of Jesus Christ? How do you explain that? How do you explain the change in this man that we know as Paul? There's no human wasn't by human invention. The gospel didn't come by human invention. And Paul makes a point here, I think, that neither did it come by human tradition. Paul did not get the gospel message through some tradition handed down to him by human teachers. When I say this respectfully, Paul did not attend the Apostolic Theological Seminary of Jerusalem. He didn't matriculate to the seminary in Jerusalem and say, I'm going to give the next three years of my life to hearing from all these other human teachers. There's nothing wrong with learning from human teachers. We benefit from human teachers. But in Paul's particular case, he's saying, that's not where I got the gospel. I did not get the gospel handed down to me secondhand through human teachers. It didn't come to me by tradition. Look at verse 17 again. He said, nor... Did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me? Hmm. So here's Paul on the way to Damascus. Radically changed. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. And he didn't turn around and say, I guess I need to go back to Jerusalem to go to seminary. He said, that's not what happened to me. He didn't get his gospel from other people, other human beings. If the Judaizers are doing what we think they were doing, they probably tried to convince the people in the Galatian churches. Paul got the gospel originally from the mother church. You know, he got the gospel from the mother church, the, the leaders, the teachers down there in Jerusalem. And by the time he got up here to Gentile land, he morphed it, he tweaked it, he modified it, he truncated it. He took off the parts that he thought might be offensive to the Gentiles to make it more acceptable and to make himself more popular. And Paul says, that's not where I got my gospel. I, did, I didn't go down to Jerusalem. I, I wasn't taught by the other apostles. He's saying I got my gospel differently. Look at verses 18 and 19. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. We know him as Peter. And remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. He says, I went three years. And so here's Paul. If you're trying to trace his own story here, his autobiography is the word. this part of his autobiography. He says, I was on my way to Damascus. Radically changed. Anxious to talk about that. But instead of going back to Jerusalem, he stayed in Damascus, and then he went to Arabia. Now, when we hear Arabia today, we always think of Saudi Arabia, but uh, back then in the Roman Empire, Arabia was kind of most of the stuff east of the Jordan Valley, so he might not have had to travel real far to get to Arabia from Damascus. But he says, "I, I went off for three years. Now, what was he doing for those three years? Was Christ meeting with him? Was the Holy Spirit shaping him? Oh, yes. But you know what else he was almost surely doing for those three years? Preaching the gospel. Christ made him an apostle to the Gentiles, so here he is in Arabia, preaching the gospel, never having spent a lot of time in Jerusalem since his conversion. He's making a strong case for what didn't happen in this case. He's saying, I didn't go to the mother church in Jerusalem to get the gospel passed down to me by human teachers. That wasn't his situation. He got the gospel very differently, didn't he? Well, since we're reading this passage, why don't we just go ahead and finish it here. In verse 21 he says, then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ they were only hearing it said. He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorify God because of me. And so Paul says, I made one short visit to Jerusalem. And that was after three years. After I was a follower of Christ for three years, I finally went to Jerusalem because I wanted to get to know Cephas. Cephas. That would be his Aramaic name. We, we know him more by the he says, I wanted to get to know Peter, so I didn't spend three years there. I spent two weeks there. I met him. I'm not sure where the other apostles were at this time. Maybe they were off to missionary work, but I, I met with Peter for two weeks. I, I saw James, Jesus' half-brother. Other than that, I didn't see the other apostles. I didn't go there to get downloaded on. I went to get to know my friend, my brother, Cephas. And it's as if he said, you know what, if right now friends in Galatia. Right now, if I made a trip down to Jerusalem and just showed up at one of their worship services, they wouldn't recognize me. The churches in Jerusalem don't even know my face. I have spent so little time there that they wouldn't even recognize me. What they know about me is only what they've heard. They've heard that this former persecutor is now a preacher of the gospel, now a missionary. And they rejoice. They rejoice at God's grace and Paul's making a case for how he did not get the gospel. It wasn't in a human invention. He didn't make it up. It wasn't from human tradition. It wasn't passed down to him secondhand. How did he get the gospel? Are you still wondering the answer to that? How did he get the gospel? Where did it come from? He tells us in verses 11 and 12, and we need to go back and read that because those verses are actually the theme of this whole passage. Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul received the gospel, not out of his head, he didn't invent it, wasn't passed down to him secondhand. It was not by tradition. It was by revelation. It was by divine revelation. Keep your finger in Galatians 1, but for a few minutes, turn back with me to Acts chapter 9. Maybe it's been a while since you've heard the story of the conversion of the Apostle Paul, how Jesus Christ met Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. Let's just take the time. To Read the first nine verses of Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 begins like this. But Saul, listen to this, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, the Christian way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem, Now as he went on his way he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul why are you persecuting me? By the way that shows you how Christ loves his bride. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Arise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand, he was blind. They led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor Rank. where did Saul of Tarsus get the gospel where did he get it not from man's invention it didn't come out of his head not from man's tradition it wasn't handed to him by somebody else it came by revelation that Jesus Christ met Saul of Tarsus that day on the road to Damascus that's the only explanation for the change in Paul's life it's the intervention of a sovereignly gracious God who revealed himself to the apostle Paul on the road to Damascus and if you follow the story in the New Testament the book of Acts and Paul's letters you see that Paul's view of himself radically changed that day Paul saw himself differently from that day forward Where before this day on the road to Damascus, he saw himself as somebody special. I'm somebody special. I'm a good person. I'm zealous. I'm doing the work of God by persecuting these Christian heretics. And he saw himself as a good person. But after this day, he describes himself, and I'm using his words, a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man. Or to quote him from 1 Timothy 1, the worst of sinners. He saw himself so differently. But not only did his view of himself radically change that day, but his view of Jesus Christ radically changed that day. That the one whom before he hated, he now loved. The one he was seeking to destroy, he now was promoting. When he writes his testimony, To the Philippians, he said this, but whatever gain I had, whatever gain I had, climbing that ladder of Judaism, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything, everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Do you hear that? from the pen of this man who was seeking previously to destroy Christ by destroying his church. Same man. How can you explain that? He says, everything I used to think is valuable in my life. This counts. This means something to me. He says, now, throw it away. Just, just throw it away. I don't want it. It's, it's rubbish to me. It's stinker. I want him alone. I would gladly throw away everything this world has to offer. I would gladly throw it all away to gain Christ. He is worth more than everything else put together. The surpassing value of Christ. That's his story. The story of the Apostle Paul who was gripped by grace that day on the way to I think one of the most picturesque descriptions of this radical change was from the pen of Paul himself. When he wrote to the Corinthians, that second letter, he said, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so that day, that day as Paul jogged along on his way to Damascus, God shone his light. He shone his light. Not only on that part of the dusty road. He shone his light into the darkened soul of Saul of Tarsus. And when God's sovereign grace shone into the heart of that persecutor of the church. When God shone his light into his darkened soul. He saw reality. He saw the truth like he would never seen it before. And suddenly he saw Christ in a light that he had never seen him before and he says I see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and he my friends was radically changed that day and now his life turned around 180 degrees, his mission turned around 180 days he became not only a believer by sovereign grace, he became an apostle of Jesus Christ by sovereign grace Paul never applied for the job. Never turned in his resume. Jesus Christ sought him out and said, you're mine. And from this day forward, you speak for me. The change, my friends, can only be ascribed to the sovereign work of God. There's no human explanation. And the gospel that Paul believed, the gospel that Paul taught, Came from not an in invention of man, not the tradition of man. It came by revelation from God. So, what are we going to do with this? What difference does that make? What difference does that make in our lives 2,000 years later and more than an ocean removed? When you think about the gospel coming not from some church council, the gospel coming not from some gifted intellectual theologian, but the gospel coming from God to his apostle Paul, what are we supposed to do with that? How is that supposed to impact us, shape us? One of the first things that came to my mind was this. We should have hearts moved with gratitude. We should have hearts moved with astonished gratitude that God would save not only the likes of Saul of Tarsus, but that he would save the likes of you and me. How did you become a Christian? How did you become a Christian? Did one day you just think, "Well, that makes a lot of sense to me. I think I'll do that. You became a Christian because God shone his light into your darkest soul. And I have the same testimony you did. You might use different means here or there, but we all have the same story. God shone his light into my darkest soul. And he showed me the sinfulness of my sin. He showed me the hopelessness of my proud vain Attempts to make myself good enough for God he showed me how foolish that endeavor is and when he shone his light into my darkened soul he showed me the beauty of his son he he showed me his glory in the face of Christ I saw myself like I've never seen myself Isn't that your story too? Isn't that your story too? When we hear the story of Saul of Tarsus, I think that, that's my story. I was an enemy of God, helpless sinner, but God, but God, in His mercy came and showed me His Son. When we hear the story. We should be moved in our hearts with gratitude. We also should have our minds solidified with confidence. I asked a question earlier. Excuse me. I asked a question earlier. How can we know? How can we know for sure that the gospel we have is the authentic gospel? How can we know that what we believe is true? look at its source. Where did it come from? It didn't come from man. It came from God. It didn't come by human invention, human tradition. It came by divine revelation. And the fact that it came from God, my friends, you can count on it. You can stake your eternity on it. It's true. And truth does matter. And we ought to have our our thinking, our minds solidified with confidence Just think about it for a minute with me. What makes biblical Christianity, can I call it that? What makes biblical Christianity different from every other religion in the world? Christ did all the work. Thank you, God. Christ did all the work. If the gospel that we believe here in this church, the gospel that we preach here in this church, the gospel you share with your kids, your grandkids, your co-workers, your fellow students, the gospel that you and I believe, rely on, share with others, if it were the invention of man, it would sound very different than it does. Because every time man tries to come up with a way to God, one way or another, it all ends up kind of sounding the same. Human religions always, in one way or another, rely on humans. And so every human religion has some element of human contribution. Even if they profess Christ in some fashion, there's always a plus. So whether Christ is there or not, there's always an element of human contribution. Be a good person. Do acts of charity. Do the sacraments. Keep the law. But all of them, all religions, all religions apart from biblical Christianity have the same basic theme. You and I need to find a way to climb up to God. You and I need to find a way, something that will convince God to accept us. And so some religions are into ceremony and ritual and sacrament. Some religions are into good works, some are combination, but they all have the same basic theme. It's human-oriented, human-dependent. Human religions, all to one degree or another, depend on human achievement, human activity. I think one of the most profound verses in the Bible is Acts 4.12. Where Peter was preaching not long after Jesus went back to heaven. And he said this. I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to emphasize a couple key words. He said, Peter's preaching. He says, and there is salvation in no one else. So let me just pause and say, it's not like, well, we believe that the best way to God is through Jesus. No, Peter says, there's salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven. Listen. Given among men by which we must be saved. So think about that declaration just for a minute. Given to men. Given by whom? Given by whom? Given by God himself. The gospel is by divine revelation. So it didn't start here. It didn't start down on the earth and try to find a way to climb up to God. Biblical Christianity alone starts up and comes down. That God said, I will provide the way. Behold the Lamb of God. The Lamb that God provides, Jesus Christ. That God sent his own son into the world. That he who was righteous became unrighteousness for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the biblical gospel. The biblical gospel does not focus on human beings. It's not in any way... Praiseworthy on our account because we became Christians. It came to us. It was affected in us. That God shone his light into us. It is the work of God, it is the revelation of God into darkened opposers of the gospel. Biblical Christianity is unique that way, there's no other name. There's no other name among men. I I don't care what country you're from. I don't care what traditions you're from. Your race, your ethnicity, your your first language. There's anywhere that mankind is. The whole earth. Christianity is not tribal. It's not like, well, that's what you folks believe in North America. It's not tribal. It's no matter where you are in the world, there's no other name. Under heaven. Given to men. By which you. Christ and Christ alone. Now, if we believe that, that not only moves our hearts with astonished gratitude, but it solidifies our convictions, it solidifies our thinking with humble courage as we live in a world that is increasingly anti-Christian. I love the first chapter of First Corinthians. Paul underlines this in his letter to the Corinthians, and he says, For the word of the cross is fallen to those who are perishing. He says the gospel message sounds like a bunch of foolishness. The people who haven't had the light shown in them yet. For people who haven't had God to give them ears to hear. The gospel just sounds like gobbledygook to them. That doesn't make any sense. You mean I could be right with God without contributing to my own righteousness? There's a reason God did it this way, my friends. Have you ever wondered wondered why the gospel plan was laid out by God the way it is? The Bible tells us why he did it that way. 1 Corinthians says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what was preached, the, the preached message, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. And then this former rabbi says but he knew all that he, he knew all that, he knew what would sell he knew what would be easy to market but he says but, in spite of all that we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks Christ, the power of God and the, and the wisdom of God because when God shines the light of his darkened soul into, I don't care if it's a Jew or a Gentile one, when God shines the light of his sovereign grace into a darkened soul, people say, oh, Christ, he is my power, he is my way to God. He is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And Paul knew that God laid out his whole plan of redemption so that Christ and Christ alone would get the glory. And that's how Paul ends the first, first chapter of Corinthians when he says God designed the whole salvation plan so that no human being would ever dare would ever dare strut his stuff before the throne of God on judgment day. But there ain't nobody, there ain't nobody can strut in front of the throne of God on judgment day and says, well I guess I made it. I know some of my peers didn't but I sure made it. I sure am good. I sure am smart. God says, I will not. I I will not share my glory with another. He wants everybody. He wants everybody who is saved on judgment today to say the same thing. He wants everybody on judgment day to sing the same song. And what is that song, my friend? What is that song? Worthy is the Lamb worthy is the Lamb who was slain to redeem people for God from every tribe, every language every people group worthy is the Lamb my friends the gospel is revealed by God and involves no human merit, no human contribution because God is ensuring that his son Jesus Christ all the glory on that day. That's the message you and I believe. Our hearts are moved with astonished gratitude. Our minds, thinking is solidified with confidence. And my friends, our evangelism should be filled with hope. Just yesterday. Just yesterday. Glad I and I met with a couple who were weeping over the hardness of someone in their family. Christ. Are there any words of hope we can give our friends? Those of us, and I say us, who have family members, loved ones, who are running away from Christ. Is there any hope? Is there any hope for them? Oh, yes. God's harm is not short, that he cannot That that unconverted loved one of yours. That unconverted loved one in in your family who seems so hardened to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ can save the heart of sin. Excuse me, but I don't even think he breaks into a sweat. He saved Saul of Tarsus. all of Tarsus. And my friends, you can save your loved one. You can save that guy at work, that fellow student at school that seems so hard. So pray. Pray, sovereign Lord. We pray and we evangelize. We hope. That's how this impacts us as individuals. But let me just say briefly this message that the gospel came not from human invention and not by human tradition, but it came by divine revelation. That truth impacts our church. The gospel of Jesus Christ cannot be ignored by our church. It's so easy to get wrapped up in the what do people want to hear today. I feel that as a preacher. I feel that you know. Okay, how can I draw a crowd? I need to find out what people want to hear. My friends, we preachers cannot—we cannot design our messages based on popularity. It Must be based on the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to give an account to Him. I, I want to hear His well done. And if people are offended by the gospel, that grieves me. I don't gloat in it. I, I grieve them. We need to be faithful to the gospel that's a commission. And that's not just true for me. That's true for all of our elders here in the church. But we can't ignore the gospel. And friends, you who are discipling your children, grandparents, as we discipled our grandchildren, Sunday school teachers, life group leaders, and yes, preachers. We cannot ignore the gospel. Neither can we modify It's so tempting sometimes to just kind of soften this part of it or change that part of it so that we're not offended, offending people. But we can't do that. Paul said it clearly in 1 Corinthians when he said in chapter 3, according to the grace that is given to me, I've laid a foundation as a skilled master builder, and another builds on it, but each one is to be careful how he builds on it. Listen, he said, for no one can lay any other foundation than that which has been laid, the foundation of Jesus Christ. And so as a local church, we have to build on the foundation of Jesus Christ. We can't ignore that. We can't modify that. I think of it this way. The church does not stand over the Bible. The church stands under the Bible. The God has spoken his gospel to us through his revelation. And we are always submissive to what he's shown us. I want to say something here before I go on and that is how grateful I am for God's kindness to this church. That if you watch the history of many local churches over time the tendency even as we sang this morning prone to wander lord I feel it that's not just true for us as individuals that's true for local churches. And I've seen churches I've grieved over churches that have wandered from the gospel message. They just kind of, over time, just gradually take a few steps to the left or a few steps to the right, and they end up taking away things or adding things to the gospel. And I am so grateful for years, for years, we've prayed, those of us who are older, have prayed, Lord, bring a new generation at our church that excels us in grace, that, that loves the gospel even more than we do. And sometimes I'm asked this. One of the older pastors here. How are you feeling about this next generation of leaders who are now carrying, carrying the heavy load? And I, I have the same, I have the same response. I am so grateful. I am so grateful for God's kindness to this church. Our church is only, you know, 40 years old or so. And I see what God has done, that He's raising up a whole new generation of teachers preachers and leaders who love Jesus Christ, who love his word, who love his church, and as an older man, I am so thankful. I tell people I can die happy. I can die happy when I see how God's poured out his grace on CCC of raising up a new generation of men who are faithful to the gospel. And those of you who are a generation or two generations younger than join me in thanking God for that. Don't take it for granted. Thank God for his kindness. There's a commitment for years to come to stay faithful to the gospel. I would be remiss if I did not talk to those of you who still have not put your faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible is clear, my unsafe friend. John would write this. He said, he who does not have the Son does not have life. I don't think I could say that any more clearly. He who does not have the Son, Jesus Christ, doesn't have life, eternal life. And if you think, oh, I think I'm all right. I think I can find my way to God. I think I can justify myself through my good works or my theology or my my religion. My friends, there's a proverb you need to hear, and that is there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that is death. I would not be loving if I didn't warn you that the path you're on of self-justification, the path you're on of self-righteousness will end in destruction. Don't keep going down that path. It's broad, it's easy, but it it ends in destruction. And so today, today, turn from that and say, I want Christ and Christ alone. The gospel is God's grace alone, through faith alone, Christ alone. Let me pray for us as the worship team comes. I'll be back up after we sing with the benedict